You may have noticed in recent days that we have had a couple of numbers floating around here, the number six and the number 10. Uh, I've shared with the leadership team a little bit about uh, what the meaning of those is, and I'd like to share just briefly this morning. Uh, not in any great detail today, but just briefly so that you'll understand where we're coming from. And then there'll be more detail on this in days to come. The 610 stands for something that I'm calling the 610 Project. And the 610 Project uh, has to do with, uh, it's more of a, of a thing that I suppose is meaningful to me. When I describe for you what this is, some of you are going to just say, you've got to be kidding me. All this build up for this, and you're just going to think that I'm, I'm completely nuts. But uh, for me personally, it has great significance, and so let me share a little bit of that with you. Beth and I uh, accepted the call to this church approximately five years ago. At the end of this year will be the end of our fifth year with you as, uh, as, uh, as part of this church. And when we came here, when we accepted the call here those uh, five years ago, uh, we did not know what the Lord was going to do here. Uh, those of you who are, are, are with us that were here then, uh, Mike and Susie and Debbie and a few others who were here at the time, know that there was just a handful of people. We really did not know what God was going to do with this church. And so we did not honestly know whether God was calling us here to close the church down, which is what the former pastor actually suggested, or were we, was God going to do something here? We didn't know. We somewhat, we somewhat felt like Abraham who went out not knowing whither he went. And uh, that's kind of what we did. But when we came, we knew that we didn't want the former. We loved this church. I mean, this is how I was saved here. There's no way in the world I was going to go without kicking and screaming to close it down. And we, we, so our prayer and our desire was that it would be the latter, that the God was not done. And uh, we also knew that if that was going to be the case, we were going to have to be willing to have a commitment. We couldn't come here for six months and say, you know, well, if it doesn't turn around in six months. So our commitment was five years. We committed to God, we committed to each other, that we would stay here, come hell or high water, for five years. And uh, that meant if there was still only seven people here at the end of five years, and we were still fighting the same battles and the same issues were going on, uh, we'd still be here five years later. Now, to be honest with you, as I look back on how long five years is, I'm not sure I would have made that if that had been the case, but... Obviously, God was not done. And uh, now, at this point in our life, Beth and I look at this place and we no longer have a five-year commitment. We, uh, uh, we, we love this church and our commitment now is as long as you guys want us here and more importantly, as long as God wants us here. But that brings us to the 610 Project. The 610 Project is years 6 through 10. We had a five-year plan when we came here, which we have been working on. That five-year plan was basically... Uh, you know, with a, a, some input. I mean, Mike was here at the time, and Susie, and a couple of others. But for the most part, it was uh, it was us, just this little tiny group that came up with this five-year plan, and, and we've been working through that. And now we come to the next five, and we need to determine where do we go from here. And so the 610 project is just simply that. How do we how do we set our goals? How do we de- how do we define what uh, what our our purpose and mission and goals as a church is going to be for the next five years? And so uh, more details on that are going to come. Here's what I want from you right now. There's two things going on right now. First of all, we're formulating a team, and that team is going to help us to, uh, to work through these issues. And so uh, you may be asked to be a part of that team. If you are, I hope you'll prayerfully consider that. If that's something you think you need to be a part of, let me know. But uh, we'll probably be coming to you. Uh, but the other thing primarily is pray. I don't know if you've noticed, but most of the 610 things have had the word prayer along with them. And that's why. Because as we try to determine God's will for the next five years, I don't think any of us believe now that it's God's will that this church closed down. I think it is God's will to continue on. And uh, 
take it to the next step. And uh, whatever that is, is, as God defines. So uh, I'm asking for your prayers. I'm asking that you really, really, really make it a matter of prayer. And if you do get approached and asked to be a part of this team, uh, please uh, prayerfully consider helping us with that effort. Our goal is to have, uh, have a uh, plan that we can put before the entire church, just so you understand what it is, by our annual meeting, which is at the end of the year. So that's only three months. So be in prayer. Uh, it's going to be a, going to be a pretty good sized task. And uh, we'll need that. So that's 610. How many of you want to say, oh, that's it? It's a very important thing. And hopefully you see that it's a very important thing to me personally because of a personal goal that I had. So I hope you'll be in prayer about it. All right, at this time, Brother Josh, would you come? He's going to be reading for us from Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. You can be turning there in your Bibles. Now on the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards, or, or the courts of the house of God, and in the open square of the water gate, and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths, and sat under the booths, for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun, until the day of the children of Israel, had not done so. And there was very great and there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribing. Thank you, Brother Josh. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father God, we are so thankful to turn now to the Word of God. And I pray that, uh, Father, you'll just calm our hearts and minds and help us now to concentrate on what you have for us today. Pray, Father, you'd fill me with your spirit. Help me, Lord, to uh, to be focused and to uh, to pr- present the message just as you would have it presented. And help us all, Lord, to be open and, and receptive to the Word of God today. Speak to us, we pray. Lord, we don't come to this as just any book. We come to it knowing it's the Word of God. And we know that it's your message to us. And we know that these words that are read from this chapter in Nehemiah have meaning to each of us today. So speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been in a study in the book of Nehemiah for a while now, and in our previous study, we were in chapter 8, and we looked at the first half of chapter 8, and uh, we entitled that particular message, Bring the Book. And the reason we entitled that, Bring the Book, is because we see here that in this chapter, we have this wonderful event that occurred where all the children of Israel gathered together, 
to hear the reading of the word of God. The key verse of this chapter probably, probably could be, uh, could be described as, as verse number one, where it says, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And so bringing the book and everything surrounding that event is what this whole chapter is about. Now, in that previous study, when we concentrated on the first half, we learned some things. So just review for a minute. We learned about the primacy of the book, you may remember. And, uh, of course, this passage definitely speaks to that thought. Now, the Word of God is uh, supreme. It, is, it is, is supreme in every way. It's the Word of God. It's therefore crucial to every aspect of our life. It is the only thing we need for our faith and practice. We talked about that, and so we don't need to belabor it here. Uh, we also learned about the proclamation of the book. And, and this passage has some interesting things to say about that. It talked about um, how they proclaimed it and how we therefore ought to proclaim it today. Uh, They read from it. Uh, They translated it. They explained it and the people understood it. And we got that from verse number 8. Verse number 8 says they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And we, we pretty much concluded that that phrase, they gave the sense, referred to translating it probably from the Hebrew into Chaldee or Aramaic, which they were familiar with at the time. So we saw that the Bible is, uh, we saw the primacy of the book, we saw the, the proclamation of the book, and then we learned just briefly some of the results. I don't know if you remember some of those, we just kind of touched on them. Uh, we learned that uh, as the book was read, it brought understanding, and we saw that all throughout. Verse number two, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding. As a matter of fact, that word understanding is mentioned several times. It's in verse number three, I believe, as well. Yes, before the men and women and those who could understand. It's also in verse number seven. I won't read all those names. A bunch of names help the people to understand the law. Verse number eight, they read distinctly and gave the sense and helped them to understand. And so as they read, it brought understanding. As they read, we saw also it brought penitential sorrow. Sorrow. Uh, verse number 9 is where we saw that particular truth. Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. So it brought sorrow, uh, confession, penitential sorrow over their sin. And when they saw just how far short they fell of what was taught there in the law. And then we also learned that it brought joy. And that was in verses 10 through 12. He said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so that's that's where we started. Today I want to conclude, because we didn't get through the whole chapter, and there's just a little bit left here that I wanted to talk about today. And, and, And I think what we're going to see is that there's yet another couple of results that I want us to talk about that took place. Uh, as a result of them turning to the word, when they brought forth the book. A couple of thoughts that I think we can expect to see happen when we center our lives around the Bible and turn our attention to the book. Uh, Really one in particular that I want to mention, but uh, we'll say two, because one doesn't make much of an outline. So, the first thing that I would like to point out to you is that the word of God brought obedience. And we did touch on this, I believe, last time, but It brought obedience. And almost everything that Brother Josh read for us just a few minutes ago from verses 13 down through verse 17 describes this fact. The word brought obedience. Did you notice what he read about? He read that on the second day of this month. Now remember where they are. They're in the seventh month. And they're having this great celebration. 
On the second day of this great celebration, we see that they continued to study the Bible. Verse number 13, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. The great big Bible study on day one wasn't enough. They come back on on day two and they go right back to the word again. And as they are studying it on this second day, the interesting thing is they found a particular thing described therein that they were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles during that month. I can only assume that they must have come across Leviticus chapter 23. Because in Leviticus chapter 23 and verses 37 and following, we we see that very thing. And I'll let you read that on your own. We won't turn there. But the fact is, on the seventh month, during the seventh month, they were to celebrate this Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, we could spend some time this morning on that. We could talk a little bit about what the Feast of the Tabernacles was and, and what it meant. We could take the time to describe today how the children of Israel would would, uh, gather materials and and build themselves little booths, the Bible says, or shelters. They would build them on the flat roofs of their homes, or they would build them in the street uh, in front of their homes. Or if there wasn't room there, they'd build them in some of the common areas uh, of the town. And then they would just basically camp out there throughout the time of this of this entire Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, We could take some time to describe what the purpose of this event was. And frankly, I think the purpose of the Feast of the Tabernacles was somewhat similar to what we did last Sunday with our old-fashioned Sunday. And by the way, thank you to all those who labored so incessantly to make that such a wonderful day. And thank you to those who prayed that it would be the day that it was. But if you'll recall, we talked about the fact that that day had a uh, kind of a purpose of looking back. You remember that? That's what they were doing at the Feast of the Tabernacles. They were looking back and remembering what God had done and how he had delivered the children of Israel. Uh, it was a time of looking around, we said. Uh, that just like our old-fashioned Sunday is during harvest time, so theirs was, this was during harvest time, and they would look around and thank God for the provision that God had given them. And it was also a time of looking ahead. This is, we talked about how God's not done. Uh, they, would, they would, as they went through this feast, they were also looking ahead to the promises that God had given them and, and would yet do. We could take time to look at all those things, but we won't. I'll leave that for your own study this morning, because I think that the lesson here is much simpler than that. I, the Feast of Tabernacles, yeah, we could talk about that, but I think the lesson here is really much simpler. A very simple truth, and that is this. These people, as they read the Word of God on day number two, they read a requirement... Here's something you're supposed to be doing in the Word of God. And they did it. And now I know what you're sitting there saying. You're saying, you've got to be kidding me. This guy went to Bible college. This guy supposedly got a degree. And that's the best he could come up with. Yes, it is. Absolutely the best I could come up with. They read a truth in the Bible. And they did it. That, I think, is the lesson that we see right here. The simple, vital truth. They heard it. They understood it, and that led to obeying the Bible. I don't think we need to get any deeper than that. I don't think there is any greater significance for us than that, at least until we get that one. There's no reason to go any further. I read one time, and I've probably shared this illustration with you before, about a preacher who took a new church, came into the church on the first Sunday, and you know, first Sunday with a new preacher, everybody loves the preacher. And then uh, that goes away after a while. But the first Sunday, he can't do any wrong. So he stood up there and he preached his first sermon. And everybody afterwards, he's standing in the back door. And they're just slapping him on the back and shaking his hand. Saying, oh, preacher, that was a wonderful sermon. That was just great. Good word, preacher. Next Sunday, they all gathered together thinking, what, what are we going to hear today? This is just going to be wonderful. Last week was so good. And, they got there, and he preached the exact same sermon. 
And they're all looking around at each other. You know, you see all these looks being shot across the congregation. As they walked out, they all shook his hand, but this time it was a little bit more strained. And they said, oh, that was good. That was, that was a good sermon preacher. Nobody had the nerve to say to him, are you not to preach the same sermon two weeks in a row? So no, they just went on their way. And they talked about it, as people do. They talked about it that week, and they decided, well, you know, maybe he's just not a very good record keeper. Maybe he just forgot. Maybe he doesn't really realize that he preached the same sermon. So they get, the, get together on the third week, and they think to themselves, well, this, you know, that was just an anomaly. This week will be fine. He stood up there and he preached the same sermon. Third day in a row. So now they thought, well, this is not an accident. The guy's going to preach the same sermon. He's only got one. What in the world have we hired here? And so the deacons took him aside and they said, Preacher, do you realize you preached the same sermon three weeks in a row? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, well, what are you doing? He said, when you obey that one, I'll preach another one. <laughs> That's kind of where we're at here, isn't it? If these people had read and heard and understand, understood all those things that we described were taking place here, but not obeyed, there wouldn't have been any lasting results to this thing. Nothing would have been accomplished. Paul said, not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So they heard something in the Bible. They read something in the Bible. And they did it. They obeyed. Now, a couple of observations come to my mind as I think about that, as that kind of turns around in there. One of them is this. Immediate obedience is desirable. Immediate obedience. I think what we see here is these people wasted no time whatsoever in hearing and obeying. They didn't have time to waste. They read this. It's supposed to take place during the seventh month, and they thought to themselves, hey, it's the seventh month. We don't have much time. Actually, they had a couple of weeks yet to get this ready, and they did on time. But they didn't have any time to fool around. They had to obey immediately if they were going to do it. But you know the same thing is true of us. We hear something in the Bible. Immediate obedience is what God wants from us. Immediate. When we hear that the Bible says, you know, you're lost without Christ if you don't accept him as your Savior. There's no time to fool around with that. There's nothing to think about. There's nothing to cogitate around in your mind. It's immediate. We need to call upon him and be saved. When, as a young believer, we hear that the Bible teaches, and we talked about this in our, in our FBC 101 class this morning, when we hear that the Bible teaches baptism is commanded immediately after salvation, there's nothing to think about. The Bible says do it, we do it. See, immediate obedience is what the Bible talks about. When the Bible says that we're to give up a particular sin that we just love to hold on to, and all of us in those dark spots of our life have those things, yeah, when we when we, read, we come across a passage of Scripture that says, and the Holy Spirit gets hold of us and points to that and says, that's you. Get rid of that in your life. Let it not be named among you. Don't do it. Immediate is what is desired. Immediate obedience. Now, notice I didn't say immediate obedience to the pastor. Notice I didn't say immediate, obe immediate obedience to some other person. No, you would be perfectly right, and you are perfectly right to take every word I say, every word your Sunday school teacher says, every word anybody else in this place says, and go and compare it to what the book says. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But when the book says it, well, we've got no place else to go. <clears throat> and so we just, we just obey. So immediate obedience is one thing. But the second thing I see here as I think about this is another similar thought, and that is this. Continuing obedience is desirable. 
continuing obedience. This is an interesting verse here, and it's actually, uh, I guess if I have a text today, it's this verse. It's verse number 17. This is kind of a disjointed message. Maybe I don't really have a text, but I think this is it. Verse number 17 says, The whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. I think that's a very interesting verse, and I think it has some very interesting uh, connotations to us as believers in America in the 21st century. I wonder, for example, what does it mean there where it's, when it says, they hadn't done this since the days of Joshua until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. What does that mean? Does that mean that they had not observed in any way, shape, or form the Feast of Tabernacles since Joshua had led in the conquest of Canaan? That was a long time ago. That was hundreds of years ago. Think about some of the leaders Israel had had between those two periods of time, between then and now. David had been the king. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David, the man after God's own heart. Is it possible that David reigned all those years and never once the Feast of Tabernacles was observed? Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, reigned. How about Hezekiah or Josiah, good, godly kings? Is it possible that they never observed the Feast of Tabernacles? How about Samuel? Samuel, the wonderful prophet and priest. Samuel, is it possible that he allowed all those years to take to go without ever observing the Feast of Tabernacles? I find that difficult to believe. And I really struggled as I looked at this passage of Scripture. How could it be? How could it be? These guys were godly men. Why would they just allow uh, the scripture to be completely ignored? But then we also come across accounts that, sh- that really just show us just the opposite. For example, and you can look these up on your own. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 8 says that they observed the Feast of Tabernacles. First Kings chapter 8, Second Chronicles chapter 7 also say it. You can flip over and we'll look at this one. You can flip over just one book to the previous book, the book of Ezra. And you remember who's the one doing all the reading right now? It's Ezra. And Ezra's the one who that previous book is, uh, is written about. Ezra chapter 3, look there. Ezra chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse number 1. It says, When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua the son of Jozadak and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shalchil and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and evening burnt offerings, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written. And so obviously, that's not what this means. Obviously, this is not saying they had not celebrated it at all during that time. The correct interpretation must then be that they had not celebrated it in such a way as they did here. And I think it's the NIV that actually translates it that way. They had not celebrated it like this. The title of today's message is like never before. Like never before. And they were celebrating here like never before. The picture here is of an enthusiastic, joyful, community-wide celebration and obedience. The leaders led, the people agreed, and all took part in a spirit of celebration that had not been seen. We might paraphrase a part of verse 17 uh, as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles like never before. Warren Rearsby says, It was not the fact of the celebration that was so special, but the way they celebrated. For it appears that everybody participated enthusiastically because every family made a booth, 
Some of the people had to move from the houses into the streets and squares of the city. Apparently in previous years, not all the Jews had made booths and lived in them for the week of the feast. They had given only token acknowledgement of the feast. Furthermore, the joyful attitude of the people was beyond anything the nation had ever seen. It was truly a week of joyful celebration that brought glory to the Lord. I thought about those things. And I thought about the fact that, you know, what happens with some Christians. Some Christians start off with a bang and they end with a whimper. They start off with a bang and they end with a whimper. They obey loudly and joyfully at first and less and less as days go by. Rather than being like the Apostle Paul who ran hard every day of his life, right up until the Lord called him home. The Apostle Paul said, I don't think about the things that are behind me. I press toward the things that are ahead. The Apostle Paul who, who at the end of his life looked back and said, I have kept the faith. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. Too many Christians are not like that. Too many Christians are more like Demas, who started out with a big bang. Demas, who at the very beginning, Paul said, was a, a good part of his ministry. Paul, he was one of the companions of Paul on his journeys. And then at the, end of, at the end of Paul's ministry, he said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Too many Christians start with a bang, end with a whimper. You see, some of these people had celebrated this feast before. Some of them had watched celebrations before. Some of them had no doubt attended the celebration Ezra had led just some years earlier. But apparently they hadn't celebrated it like this until now. And so we have to ask, what stirred their hearts? What changed? What, what was different this time? What was it that fired them up this time? And I, I think from the whole context of this chapter, it's because they heard the word, they understood the word, they obeyed the word. Some for the first time and some with a renewed sense of urgency. You know, I believe we need to obey the Bible immediately. When we come across something in the Word of God that we see for the very first time, we need to obey it immediately. But you know what? We need to also obey it continuously once we understand it. Too many Christians have a been there, done that attitude about their faith. It should never end. It should never end. I believe the people who have helped me the most in my walk with God have been those Elderly believers who have stayed the course all the way to the end. This past Lord's Day, as we, as we celebrated our old-fashioned Sunday, I was out there during the, the fellowship part, and I looked out across the car display, and I saw my aunt and my uncle standing over there. My aunt and my uncle used to attend this church many, many, many years ago, uh, but they've since moved on to and they, they, they serve regularly in another church. They're a good example of a couple elderly people who uh, have stayed the course. And have never wavered. But anyway, I saw them standing out there amongst the cars, so I walked over to talk to them. And I was standing there talking to them, and my aunt looked across back over here, and I don't know who this person was that she was pointing to. I think it was one of the car club guys, big tall guy, elderly man with white hair. And she looked at him and she said, doesn't that guy look like Paul McCoy? Now, I guarantee you nobody in here knows who I mean when I say Paul McCoy. Does anybody know who I mean when I say Paul McCoy? If Debbie was here this morning, she's probably the only person in this church who would know who Paul McCoy was. When I was a child in this church, before I was even saved, I remember Paul and Ma McCoy. That's what we called them. They were aged saints at the time that I was here. And I remember that, uh, that uh, we really looked up to them. They were good people. We have a little thing here. I was going to show this to you. Most of you have seen this particular little thing. 
you've seen this particular podium that we use from time to time. You perhaps don't know how old this is. Every time I pick this up, I think of two people. I think of my grandfather who made it, and I think of Paul McCoy who he made it for. He used to hang it right there on that pew and teach Sunday school with this thing every single Sunday. Paul McCoy. I am told that one day came, Paul McCoy's last day, that he was here working at the church. He used to mow the lawns here. Didn't have riding mower back then. He used to push the push mower to mow the lawns. And I am told that he was here with Ma. She was puttering about doing other things, and he was out mowing the lawn. Until all of a sudden she began to realize, you know, I'm hearing the mower run, but it hasn't moved in a long time. It appears to be in one place. So she went looking, and she found Paul laid out on the ground, arms straight out, spread-eagled on the ground, dead. He had dropped dead, mowing the lawn, for Jesus. Wouldn't that be great? I have become a big fan of Twitter. Anybody else here do Twitter? Anybody tweet besides me? Did anybody raise their hand? No. You guys aren't right with God. I like Twitter. I know you guys are all Facebook people. But... Twitter has some very interesting people, and I follow a lot of Christian, a lot of pastors are on Twitter. I follow, uh, uh, oh, I forgot his name, who's the guy that wrote uh, Purpose Driven Life? Rick Warren, I follow him on there. But the one that I really like to read every one of his tweets is John Piper. John Piper tweets some of the most amazing things. And I read an article one time why he described why he likes Twitter. John Piper is a, is a poet and an author and, and a very eloquent individual. And he said he likes Twitter because it forces him to be very, very concise. If you know anything about Twitter, you know that you can only post a tiny little sentence. It's like 140 characters is all you could post. And so he comes up with these amazing, pithy, eloquent statements. And he posted one a couple weeks ago that it has convicted me ever since. Here's what it is. I'm just going to read it. Don't get mad at me. This is not my words. Get mad at John. Here's what he said. He said, God's response to the typical Western retirement years, quote, fool, how did all this pointless play put my glory on display? End quote. I have not been able to get that out of my mind ever since I read it. Fool, how did all this pointless play put my glory on display? You see, that tweet convicted me because I'm sure that it's intuitively obvious to even the most casual observer here that I'm getting close to the days when I should be thinking or would be thinking about retirement starting to back in. And as I think about these things, I hope and pray God will deliver me from that temptation. Because I don't want to retire. I want to burn out. I want to drop dead mowing the lawn for Jesus. And we all should. We all should want to serve until we drop. See, I think that's the challenge. That's the challenge that I see here, at least. Especially to those of us who are getting along in years. Obey the Bible immediately when we first receive it, but obey it continuously once we understand it. And that never ends. It never ends. One last thought and I'm done. This continuing obedience brought greater joy. It brought greater joy. The last part of verse number 17. Yeah, there was very great gladness. Very great gladness. That's what our text says was the result of this obedience. Immediate and continuing great gladness. Not just gladness. Great gladness. Every word in our Bible is important. Great gladness.
They heard the word. They understood the word. They obeyed the word. Then they kept obeying the word. And the result, joy. Great joy. Gladness. Some believers, the older they get, happier they seem to get in the Lord. You ever know people like that? They're like the old gospel song that says, if it keeps getting better and better, oh Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. Remember that song? And then there's some. The older they get, the crankier they get. I'm always sad when I see that type, of, that type of a person. A person who's been naming the name of Christ for so many years. Which do you want to be? Franz Joseph Haydn, composer, said, When I think upon my God, my heart is so full. My heart is so full that the notes dance and leap from my pen. And since God has given me a cheerful heart, it will be pardoned me that I serve him with a cheerful spirit. Continuing obedience brought greater joy. Well, I'll stop right there. And we'll finish with chapter 8 with that. In this chapter, we've seen a people turn with renewed emphasis to the book. We saw them hear it. We saw them understand it. We saw them obey it. And we see them also continue to obey it. And it brought a renewed interest in the things of God. It brought joy. It brought gladness. Unspeakable, full of glory, great joy. And so the challenge for us this morning... Whether you are a new believer or whether you are an aged saint is to turn with renewed dedication to the Bible. We talk about it all the time. We need to read it. We need to understand it. We need to rejoice in it. And we need to do these things over and over and over and over until Jesus calls us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. And Father, we spent a lot of time on it in this particular chapter. But Lord, it's the whole chapter is about the book. And so, Father, we thank you that it's turned our attention there. Help us this morning, Lord, as we think about these things. I do not know what, uh, what you might be doing in the hearts of these your people, but, Lord, they know and you know. And so I pray this morning that if the Holy Spirit is right now putting his finger on some area in somebody's life, that they'll deal with it. They'll get it right. There may be some who have begun to slip, some who have begun to drift away, who need to get snapped back, and I pray they would. There may be some who need to make decisions about things that uh, they need to get, get their heart right and start obeying you about. Uh, that, Lord, maybe they have not up until this point. Lord, I don't know. I don't know what people's needs are, but I pray you'll work. And as we sing, I pray you'll deal and, and help people to make right decisions. And, of course, Father, the most important decision that anybody could make would be whether or not they're going to trust you as Savior. And, Father, I don't know if there are some here today who might have to yet make that decision, but if there are, pray they would. We haven't talked about it in great depth, but I pray that they would, uh, they would be convicted of their need for Christ. I pray, Lord, they'd know they're lost. I pray they'd know that they need to do something about it. And I pray, Father, that we might have the opportunity to take the Bible and show them how they can know for certain. Is there one like that, Lord? If there is, I pray they'd be saved today. Just bless this invitation, Father. Whatever decisions need to be made, some, some maybe need to think about membership or some about baptism or some maybe just need to come and pray, spend some time at this, at this altar at the front. I pray, Lord, whatever the needs might be as we sing, you'll work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.